The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. There are two questions. One is the philosophical question. How, does it, how can we even think this through consistently? You may want to ask questions about that or push that around a bit. But at the sort of, how can we in the day-by-day -day life continue to believe that God is worthy of trust when we suffer so much? The only answer that the Bible gives is not just that he knows more than you and you've got very little clue about what he's up to, which is true, but because we've got a huge clue into his heart, into what God is like, because he comes down from the safety of heaven where he, in a sense, rightly belongs and in Jesus becomes one of us and suffers and dies. And Jesus says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Well, I'll just throw that out for now. There's probably a thousand questions that you may rightly have. Thank you very much, Ian. Um, as Ian has indicated, uh, there's the opportunity now to ask questions. You can do so by sending an SMS to this phone or filling in that little slip of paper that should be in your program and uh, perhaps one of the team, looks like Tor's readying himself. Thank you, Tor. Tor's going to uh, come around and collect any bits of paper and maybe in between that we might get one um, with a raised hand even. Okay, so I've got a question here to kick us off, mate. Thank you. Is it possible to base your moral outrage on the crimes of humanity instead of on God? Can you blame... No, read that again, sorry. Well, I'm reading it directly. Is it possible to base your moral outrage on the crimes of the rest of humanity instead of a God? I don't know if you can... One of the problems that a number of um, atheists have drawn to our attention, and some ex-atheists now, is that when you get angry with God because he ought not to let that happen... I mean, who can look at what's happening in the Middle East and not think, what the... What is going on? Not just what is man doing, but why isn't God doing more? Um, and we feel this, and you'll feel this at times when you watch little kids who are sick, etc. You think, what? But then we're actually, we're actually judging God by some standard. Now, if in the end you say, I no longer believe in that God because by my standard he's, he's a monster and he's not there, you end up then with a the universe without a God. Therefore, there is no moral basis for your outrage. So you've in the end attacked God on the basis of a bunch of feelings, which is if you're a consistent atheist, are of no significance except they just tell you how you feel. So a man like C.S. Lewis I had exactly this, but recently A.N. Wilson, who, a man who had been believed in God and then had become an atheist and has come back to God, and uh, one particular woman I was reading during the week who grew up as a child of missionary doctors in Africa, and she says, the thing that drove me out of the church is the thing that drove me back because I realised my outrage at anger has no value and no significance and no basis if we live in a, you know, a universe without God. So, so Lewis said in the end he couldn't maintain his anger at God without actually conceding that there must be a God. Otherwise there's simply no basis on which to say this is wrong. All you can say is I don't really like this. And at that point if there's no God all you're talking about is how your neurons feel. Which is not, a, not a, any real basis to critique or imprison anybody. So I think it's difficult if you don't in the end tie the sense of right and wrong to some absolute ultimate. Because then that's, a, that's an argument which I've increasingly found to be persuasive but I find it very difficult to persuade my atheist friends of. 
Thank you. I think there is a question Paul will now ask. What was the argument that you said is that killed the belief that an all-powerful God and a good God is not possible? Yes. Yeah, that, it, it was the fact that there was a, thir- a, a deliberately, perhaps, or an accidentally forgotten third leg of that. The God that they're dealing with, which was actually an ancient Greek view of the absolute theoretical God, is also all-wise. So it's when you bring in the fact... That, see, what humans accidentally did, we said, is if I don't understand what's going on, there is no explanation. Which, if you just think about it, is actually both proud and silly. When my computer... When the wheel of death comes on once again, I have not the faintest clue what to do with it, except turn it off and turn it on. And when my television broke down a while ago, I don't have... But for me to say, I don't understand, therefore there is no reason, is accidentally both stupid and proud. So it was when philosophers began to say, hang on, the God that we're dealing with is both powerful, good and wise. And he may be up to something which we are simply as yet unaware of and we need to actually ask him. And that's what Jesus in the end will come and speak to us of, of some of what God is up to. Like a parent to a child, which we may hate to get ourselves in the right position, but frankly the the gap between you and your one-year-old is infinitesimal compared to the gap between the mind of God and you. As John Wesley said, what in the 1700s, Find me a worm that can understand a human and then I'll try and find you a human that can understand God. Worms are magnificent critters but they have certain limitations. Um, I think, do you have another one to talk? Yes, I can. In terms of the origin of evil, God didn't have to allow evil therefore he was by his choice. What does this say as to the origin Good question. Um, one of the verses that... Oh, yes, let, let me try and deal with that. These are, these are brief comic book answers, I hope you realise. Um, um, when I was preparing for the talk I gave here a while ago comparing Jesus and Buddha, one of the things that I discovered as I read and as I wrote to some friends who, have, who really understand Buddhism in a way that I don't, and one a woman who was a great practitioner of various forms of Buddhism for decades that it doesn't seem that in Buddhism there is any explanation of how we get into a world where we're all deluded about everything. There's no, how do we get here? Okay, the, and Buddhism will say, well, it doesn't matter how we got here. The question is, how do you get out of this world of illusion and death and pain and suffering? The Bible does actually has a story at the beginning of God making a world that is good, where humans have real freedom. We misuse the freedom and the world at every level is screwed up. But there's actually evil even before that because they are tempted into that rebellion against God, suicidal rebellion, by someone else. And we're not told much about his origins. Um, so we know about the, sort of the entrance of evil here. Um, it's a bit like we may not know uh, exactly the origins of AIDS, but we can trace more accurately its, its entrance to Australia and how to deal with it. And so the Bible is clear that God, I mean, obviously the God of the Bible could have chosen theoretically to make human beings without choice. Um, this it doesn't answer every question, but it does seem, and Jean-Paul Sartre, who's an atheist, a very thoughtful, he's dead now, so he's no longer an atheist, but he's, um, he's a believer, but um, 
he was very clear that if you force someone to love you, it is not love. And it's never satisfying in the end to give someone a love potion in the end. And, and in terms of God, God seems to have a very deep commitment to the reality of responsible free choice. And the trouble with that is it is always risky. But what you get out of that is real people in real relationships and real love. Uh, It's difficult to understand how God could have created the situation with those possibilities without the risk of it going bad. And it's a risk in the end, lastly, that he suffered because of. It's not as if he came up with this fun experiment that went wrong and we're all suffering. He wrote himself into the play and suffered much more terribly than anyone ever has or could. So does that suggest that some of our suffering in the sense is uh, not only self-inflicted, but it's also for our good that we're left to bear our consequences? Is that what you're saying? Yes, both. I think, I think a lot of... When I look at my own little life, a lot of my suffering is self-inflicted, but other people's life, their pain is not. The pain, I don't want to obsess about it, but the pain of what's happening in Iraq to, to people who are not raising swords or guns against ISIS or whatever they want to call themselves... Um, these, are, these are innocent communities. These are non-violent communities and their children who are being slaughtered are also non-violent. So sometimes in a world of free, real choices, I will be the victim of someone else's stupidity or violence. And um, there was a second part to your question, Peter, well, which I forgot. That's fine. Um, there is another question here, and I think you've still got one more talk, but there's a question that kind of relates to what you're just saying now. Um, according to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, God is blessing both the just and the unjust. Yes. If this is so, how does a Christian feel confident in prayer? Yes, that's in, at the end of um, Matthew 5, where we're called on to love as God loves, and he does good to both the just and the unjust, and he talks there about sending rain and sunshine. Um, God is clearly being good to the members of ISIS because he lets them live. Um, this is the problem for people who rebel against the living and the true God. They, in the end, um, they only survive because of his grace. So in my years of telling God where to get off and mocking him and mocking his people, I was only alive because God allowed me to stay alive. Um, so we mock the very one in whose hand we live. But um, uh, can you ask that question again, Peter? Uh, well, if God is blessing the both the just Yes, and the that's right, us, thanks. Yeah. How does that leave us with confidence in prayer? Well, I think your confidence in prayer ultimately is because Jesus says, let me tell you about my father. He is, he's like a father. And he said, even the evil father knows how to give bread to his kids and my father will hear and answer your prayers. And like any half-decent father, he will often answer lovingly saying no. I think I love my three daughters, but I have often enough said no. Sometimes because I was incapable of saying yes, sometimes because I knew it was bad for them. Um, well, I have four points here, I think, in, in Christian teaching, very, which I'm not going to share with you all. I've shared some of them, uh, which, which help us live with the suffering, help us to continue to trust God and move forward and to love our enemies, etc., in the middle of suffering and the fact of judgment and ultimate restoration uh, is one of the great things that keeps people from feeling the need to retaliate because God himself will bring justice um, and so yes I think that knowledge that this, this moment in history however long it goes for thousands, millions of years 
is just a brief flicker in eternity. It seems like forever, as a bad night of sleep does in a poor hotel. But that's all it is. And in the end, that there is a judgment and that, that evildoers will suffer. Every now and then, someone who's evil gets caught and I've heard, I've heard stupid politicians say, there you go, see, it just shows in the end you will be caught. Oh, rubbish. An awful lot of wicked men and women get away with it. They live and die happily in their beds. Um, but that, the Bible says, that there is to be a judgment. It does actually say that there will be some restoration of justice and every wicked deed will be dealt with. But it's also worth knowing that it's not just restored, it is far better. One of the things that you learn through this terrible wickedness and brokenness is that God acts in a way that perhaps we would never have seen if there'd been no sin. The death, the blood of God's own son on the earth. And we may never have seen that or known that. It may be why the Bible says that the angels long to understand what we understand living life in a broken world where the Son of God has come to die for us. Let me just suggest one thing. Can I... Or not? I'll go for another hour. We've got got three or four minutes. Oh, good. Just a quick fire answer. Relax. Quick fire answer to this one because there's a couple of quick questions here. Okay, you've mentioned Iraq and Syria. Yeah. What should a Christian response be? And secondly, is it ever right to get involved to protect the weak against aggression? Um, Thank you. The sort of thing in terms of the specifics of something like Iraq, but let's not forget what's happening in Nigeria. I mean, those girls were taken and now they're kind of forgotten now and other villages in Nigeria are being slaughtered um, by the same group, Prokul Haram, whatever they're called. Um, it's not that, but some other name, that, that group. Um, we should be praying, which is, which is very powerful. Only people who don't know God and have had no experience would think that prayer is doing nothing. It's not the most powerful you're going to do anything for me in my life, pray for me. That's what I want. And the other thing we can do is get people are giving money. Uh, the Barnabas Trust, Open Doors, Samaritan's Purse, they have got all sorts of networks working in the Middle East and they'll get the money. I've checked up on some of this. I'm not going to give them money to just someone to fly around in business class, all that sort of charitable works. Um, you, can, you can give money which will get food and water and things like that to help people survive. And yes, there is a place for force. Um, the, the Romans 12 and then Romans 13 is the key part because Romans 12 says exactly what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount I am not to answer evil for evil but I am to answer evil with kindness the next chapter speaks about governments have a sword to reward the good and to punish the evildoers there is a place for force there is a place for being in the police being in the legal system being in the army godly men and women can be there but that's, it's their job, not for me to take up arms, you and me to get our guns together. Okay, and uh, thank you. A uh, quick last question. Can you just tell us what this poem is about on your program? Yes. Um, one of the distinctive, disturbing things about what Jesus reveals about God is that God is not just great and transcendent and beyond our understanding which he is but he stoops down and becomes part of our world. He's, he's great but not brittle. He's not a clumsy giant who can't come down and become part of the small things of life. And he comes down and the God that um, Christians have always worshipped is a God who is wounded. That person on the cross is not just a man, he is also the son of God. So God has wounds. Uh, that's part of the beauty of what will be in heaven. I take it when we see him in glory, he will still bear the marks of that suffering because that is his greatest moment of glory 
that he loves sinful people and dies for them. So this is one of the poems that speaks about that, that speaks about one of the things that helps us in our own woundedness is that the God that we worship is not just great and distant but knows from the inside what it is like to suffer and to go through pain. The last thing I'd like to suggest is this book. Uh, John's got a great section. John Dixon has spoken here a few times. He's got a great section in this book. If I were God, I'd end all the pain. His last chapter, I think, is on the God with wounds and he, he talks about that. This looks at the atheistic answers to suffering and their problems and their deep problems in that thought line. Buddhist answers, Hindu answers... Islamic answers, the Christian answer. You can, it's a very scholarly work. Normally, $1,000 a page, but this, but today is a special. We've got seven or eight copies. If you've got a $10 note, give us that and we'll give you it for free. If you've only got a $5 note, give us that and we'll hope it'll average out because it costs about in the middle there. But so you don't have to work in change. Give us five, give us ten, whatever you feel you can give us and we'll give you a book. And it'll take you about an hour or so to read it. It's really gold. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ian. And I'm going to let you go in just 60 seconds or less. Uh, So there are a few things you can do from here. One is to get this PowerPoint to work. Uh, Never mind. Um, Four things. One, post your questions on askgod.com.au. Okay? Post any question you'd like. You will get an answer of a sort. uh, And the best questions we will seek to address here. Secondly... You each receive two cards in your program. Please do uh, pass them on to someone today. Just pass it on. Anyone, work, friend, and uh, you can treat it jovially or however you wish. Have you ever thought of asking God a question? And uh, they can ask a question and they'll get an answer. Thirdly, you'll find out on Monday morning on our website and on our Facebook page what the question is that we're going to address here next week. And fourthly, of course, come along and be part of the discussion. So on that, I wish you a great afternoon. The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.